This is Guns and Butter. Something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. The primary deception in FEMA's report is to make you think that the core columns didn't even exist. But even if you believe all this stuff about these floor diaphragms collapsing, it doesn't begin to lead to total building collapse because what you'd have is you'd have these floor diaphragms which are like, sort of like rings that extend all the way around the core and out to the exterior wall, which simply pancake down around the core columns like records falling down around a spindle, leaving both the core structure and the outer wall intact, no total collapse. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Jim Hoffman. Today's show, Your Eyes Don't Lie, Common Sense, Physics, and the World Trade Center Collapses. Jim Hoffman is a software engineer and research scientist. His work in applying scientific visualization to mathematics was instrumental in the discovery of the first new examples of complete embedded minimal surfaces in over 100 years. His work was featured in articles in Science News, Scientific American, Science Digest, and Nature. He discovered new three-dimensional morphologies for modeling block copolymers, systems used in a kind of nanotechnology, and co-authored papers in science and macromolecules. He collaborated in the development of new inventions in combustion engineering and is co-author of a patent for an internal combustion engine with increased thermal efficiency. Jim Hoffman has been researching the World Trade Center collapses since February of 2003 and has created an extensive website reporting his investigations and other aspects of the September 11th attack at www.wtc7.net. He uses common sense and physics to analyze the collapse of the World Trade Center. Jim Hoffman, welcome. Thank you. What was your first impression on September 11th, 2001, when the Twin Towers collapsed? Well, I was shocked, like I think just about everybody was. But the curious thing was, is that I didn't question the official story. You know, the towers supposedly collapsed because of the collision damage and fire stress to the buildings. And that was what they were reporting on the day, you know, the, the towers collapsed. But even though I found it shocking that these huge permanent steel structures could just instantly self-destruct, for some reason, I don't know why, I didn't question the official story about that. But then early in 2003, I picked up a copy of one of the first and still only books that actually addresses the alternate theories of the Twin Towers and that they were demolished instead of just merely falling down, the book Painful Questions. I started to look into it. I went to the web and I found some sites that describe what happened. And suddenly I had a completely different understanding of it because when I looked at the images of the Twin Towers blowing up into these huge clouds of dust, suddenly it didn't fit um, the explanation of these buildings falling down and it became incredibly obvious that these buildings were demolished. And yet when I watched some of the same footage on September 11, 2001, I don't remember even seeing all that dust. I remember seeing the buildings disappear. I remember, okay, the the building is there, and then the next moment it's gone. It's shocking. But I don't remember seeing the dust. And the the dust is one of the most damning pieces of evidence for the official story because how are these buildings thoroughly pulverized in midair? They turned into dust in midair. Clearly, it makes no sense in the official story. 
So when did you get involved researching the physical evidence of the Twin Tower collapse? Well, as soon as I discovered that the official explanation of the tower collapses was untenable in late February of 2003, I immediately started researching it more intensively, and I started developing a website almost immediately, just for my own use at first, just to keep track of all the various aspects of September 11th. And I just kept building on that, and a lot of other people had already done some really good analysis on the on the Twin Towers, but there was still an incredibly scant amount of material. I mean, it was just really a few researchers. Your work pretty much concentrates on researching the amount of energy required to bring these massive towers down. Isn't that correct? Well, that, I think that's one of my more original contributions because this paper, the North Tower Collapse, the um, analysis of the energy requirements of the expansion of the dust cloud following the collapse of World Trade Center 1, is something that nobody else had done anything like. There were some comments I heard from scientists early on talking about there must have been some other energy source. So clearly the idea was out there, but nobody had really articulated it. You know, even though I'm, I'm sure people knew better, I'm sure people understood that expanding those dust clouds required huge amounts of energy, but I, nobody's published a paper on it as far as I know until I did. How did you make the calculations, mathematically? Well, yeah, there's a few simple... Well, using mathematics and using a, just a few basic laws of thermodynamics, like there's the ideal gas law, which describes how much heat you'd need to expand a parcel of gas a given amount under constant pressures. So that's the ideal gas law. And then there's another mode of expansion besides thermodynamic expansion is the vaporization of water. And that's a simple calculation, too, because when you boil water, you turn a small volume of liquid water into a large volume of steam, and it's easy to quantify the amount of energy that's required to produce a given amount of expansion if it's accounted for by steam. So it's it's really very simple physics. This paper, uh, even though it's, it's somewhat detailed, is just basic high school physics, just the most basic thermodynamics, nothing complicated. So you used basic physics to do your investigation. Mm -hmm. You're not a structural engineer. No, I'm not. No, I'm a, I'm a software engineer, and I have some background in combustion engineering and just a good science background. But no, I don't have any you know particular area of, of expertise on this subject. And that's what I think is so interesting. It's to understand what happened in the destruction of the skyscrapers in Manhattan does not require any specialized engineering knowledge. And in fact, the arguments that I make in terms of the amount of energy required to pulverize these buildings and to produce this expansion of the dust cloud and the, the features of the collapses wherein the buildings collapse straight down following the path of maximum resistance, you know, these clear non sequiturs and things that don't make sense in terms of the official story. Those are not even engineering arguments. They're physics arguments. They're basic. I mean, you don't have to understand how the building was constructed to understand that a solid structure wouldn't even have to be made out of steel. It could be made out of toothpicks and, you know, just the flimsiest materials wouldn't just, a tall structure like that wouldn't just collapse through itself, just, you know, ripping itself apart and, and going straight down. It would topple one way or the other. That's just basic intuition and, you know, it's not even physics. It's just basic intuition, which is why I challenge people to try to construct a model that has basically the same shape as one of the towers. That is, it's seven times as tall as it is wide and that if you disturb it at the top, you, you could take a blowtorch or, or take an axe or something, disturb it at the top, and then it will it will rip itself apart. It will, it will um, just collapse starting from the top and just progressively collapse down. This is a phenomenon that's been dressed up and given the fancy term progressive collapse. But how interesting that this term progressive collapse apparently only shows up in the description of building collapses in two cases. 
One is the collapse of the Twin Towers in New York City, and the other, how interesting, is the Murrow Building in Oklahoma City. With regard to the Murrow Building in Oklahoma City, wasn't it the same company who was hired to dispose of the of rubble? The, of the evidence, of the rubble, yes. Controlled Demolition, Inc., the same company that was subcontracted by Tully Construction in the aftermath of the World Trade Center collapses to put into effect this plan to um, recycle the steel, that same company was, I think, one of the primary contractors that took the evidence from the, the remains of the Murrah building and buried the evidence before it could be you know, properly investigated. Because the Oklahoma City bombing is itself a very interesting case and I, I think is the most direct historical precedent to the attack on New York City on September 11th because the destruction pattern to the building has basically no relationship to the truck bomb. There's a truck bomb of AMFO, which is a mixture of fertilizer and hydrocarbons that supposedly produce these blast pressures great enough to carve out this huge crater out of this building. But when General Parton, who's an explosives expert, did an analysis, he found that the blast pressures from such a bomb weren't nearly great enough to produce the destruction of the reinforced concrete pillars that were, you know, considerable distances from the blast source. Moreover, there was a highly asymmetrical pattern in the damage, which is easily explained by pointing out that there were several unexploded bombs inside the building. And if those had exploded, it would have produced a more circular shape of damage. But since they weren't exploded, you have this very peculiar little notch that's carved out of the building. The unexploded bombs in the building were documented, were found by police that arrived on the site and were widely reported on local television channels that reported over and over that the unexploded bombs were discovered in the building. And yet we never heard about that on national television. That remained localized. There was also a curious case of a I think it was a policeman, one of the first policemen who arrived on the scene and probably one of the policemen who had discovered unexploded bombs who was actually going to – he was going to be honored at some kind of event. And then there is this curious case of him supposedly committing suicide like just a couple of days before this event that would honor him. So that the suspicion is, is that he was about to spill the beans and provide some even more evidence that this was an inside job. Could you say a little bit about the other buildings in the World Trade Center? Within the World Trade Center – proper. Only the Twin Towers collapsed. How many other buildings were there and what happened to them? The ones in the direct vicinity of the collapse. So on the actual World Trade Center superblock, that's the original World Trade Center, minus Building 7, which was across Vassy Street to the north, there were a total of six buildings. There were the Twin Towers, which were kind of central to this block. And then to the north, you had nine-story buildings, um, or eight-story building 6, nine-story building 5, nine-story building 4 to the east. And then you had the Marriott Hotel, which is on maybe a 20-story building, just lying almost directly underneath the two towers to the west. So the Twin Towers were surrounded by these low-rise buildings. And on September 11th, these, of course, when the jets collided with the buildings, they severely damaged the tops of the Twin Towers, and then there rained some debris on some of the other buildings. But when the Twin Towers collapsed, 56 and 102 minutes later, in the case of the South and North Tower, all this heavy steel from uh, as much as 1,000 feet or even more than 1,000 feet above these low-rise buildings rained down on these buildings and just hammered them with thousands of tons of steel falling thousands of feet. And even then, they didn't cause total collapse of any of these other buildings. Like, you know, imagine Building 3, the Marriott Hotel, received thousands of tons of steel falling from first the South Tower and then the North Tower, and it crushed large parts of the building. But in, in both cases, the building was able to stop the collapse that was caused by this crushing. It just crushed several stories and then it came to a halt. 
I just bring that point up because contrast that with the official story that 15 floors of the North Tower are supposed to have entirely crushed the rest of the building after only falling one floor. But anyway, in terms of the pattern of destruction, so the two Twin Towers were totally leveled except for some fragments of the outer wall in both cases that remained standing a few floors high. But other than that, they were totally leveled and uh, most of the debris fell outside of the footprint of either of the towers and much of that landed on, the heavy debris anyway, landed on the adjacent low-rise buildings, crushed large portions of them. And then buildings four, five, and six were ravaged by severe fires that went on for most of the afternoon. Unlike Building 7, Building 7, the 47-story skyscraper that supposedly collapsed due to fires, only had relatively small fires. Meanwhile, these other low-rises had severe fires, that just flames leaping out of them, just totally gutted by the action of first the crushing of the, of the debris and then by these severe uncontrolled fires that raged for most of the afternoon. And the point being that these other buildings no, did not collapse. Yeah. and they, were, they had far more stress than any of the skyscrapers. And note that the skyscrapers, again, skyscrapers have to be designed to withstand hurricanes and withstand earthquakes. I imagine they're designed to withstand at least um, a seven-magnitude earthquake, and they're designed to withstand, well, like I said, fires have never leveled a steel frame building or even caused structural damage to a vertical column in any steel frame building in history, any, any steel frame high-rise in history. And yet, fire is blamed exclusively for leveling Building 7 and primarily for the leveling of the two Twin Towers. And yet fire, you know, you had all the severe structural damage, far more severe than the plane impacts, and severe out-of-control fires that went on for hours in these low-rises that didn't cause any kind of collapse in the, these buildings. And note that low-rises aren't designed to nearly the strength specifications of a high-rise because the forces are so much less like wind forces and a hurricane-type wind. Basically, um, if you look at the strength distribution in a building, the strength is proportional to the distance from the top of the building. So like in the towers, the steel gets thicker and thicker as you go down the building from the top to the ground. The steel gets thicker and thicker because the forces get that much greater. Well, low-rise building is like the very top of the tower. It's just pretty thin beams because they don't take that much force. So I think that when you realize that what stresses and forces these buildings, these skyscrapers, had to be designed to deal with. And the fact that normal engineering practice is to design any kind of structure like a bridge or a skyscraper to withstand at least three times expected dynamic loads and five times expected static loads. And by that, I mean, like, if you were to fully load the building and, like, have, you know, standing room-only crowds on all the floors and then have other stresses like have a hurricane at the same time, it would have to be designed to withstand several times that amount of stress. And remember that September 11th wasn't even a particularly windy day. The only stress would have been this gravitational weight of the top of the building bearing down and then the stress from the fire supposedly weakening the building. And that's supposed to have resulted in complete collapse, totally destroying 1,000 vertical feet of intact structure from the ground to the collision zone. It's supposed to have thoroughly destroyed all that structure, that structure that was designed to withstand hurricanes at almost the same rate as a rock falling from the roof of the building would have taken to hit the ground. Just, you know, it makes no sense at all. I'm speaking with software engineer and research scientist Jim Hoffman. Today's show, Your Eyes Don't Lie, Common Sense, Physics, and the World Trade Center Collapses. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How were the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7, which collapsed as well, how were they constructed? What kind of buildings? Well, it's, um, there's a myth that the um, Twin Towers 
had a very peculiar type of architecture and that that's often blamed for their total collapse. Now, it's true that this design of the World Trade Center was rather unique at the time that they were constructed. That construction consists of a very strong core structure that's a bundle of vertical columns that run the entire height of the building, and then a palisade of columns around the outside of the building that is linked by various cross members and the floors to the core structure. So you have an outer tube that's like the outer wall of the building, and then an inner core, and those stiffen each other, and so it's a very effective system for bracing the buildings against the tremendous forces they have to survive in terms of hurricanes and earthquakes and things, and yet they provide a large open floor expanse area between the core and the outer wall, so it's very nice for office space. At the time, that was a rather unique design, but actually most modern skyscrapers employ a similar design where they have a core, there's a strong core structure, and then then most of the other load-bearing columns are moved to the exterior of the building to provide uninterrupted space for a large part of the floor space on each floor. Even Building 7, which um, was constructed about 10 years after the uh, towers, also employed a similar construction. Um, It had, I think, 27 core columns and 58 exterior columns and large expanses of floor between the two. So actually, contrary to popular misconception, the Twin Towers were not a particularly unusual construction by contemporary skyscraper design, nor were they flimsily built, which is another thing we're supposed to believe in order to believe the official story. Uh, They did remarkably well when the planes hit them. I mean, when... when, uh, 767 hit the North Tower. There was a sway of maybe about 10 feet, according to some reports, but that wasn't enough to even be observable in videos of it. Those buildings stood solid as this huge jet rammed into it. And those buildings are designed to sway, you know, like all skyscrapers are designed to have some sway, and that's well within the limits of what they experience in a strong storm. So these buildings were very sturdily constructed. Yeah, they had to be because any skyscraper has to be able to survive earthquakes. Oh, of course, maybe the Twin Towers, being in New York City, didn't have to experience anything more than a three-magnitude earthquake at the most. But I'm sure they had to be designed to withstand at least um, a magnitude 7 earthquake because earthquakes of that magnitude are possible in that area. And I believe they were rated to survive hurricane-force winds, like 140-mile-an-hour winds, And they were specifically designed to withstand crashes of precisely the type that happened on September 11th. Now, it's another misconception is that the planes that hit the Twin Towers being 767s, being jumbo jets, supposedly jumbo jets, well, wide-bodied, slightly wider body than other airplanes, were not anticipated. But yet, if you look at the planes whose impact they were anticipated to survive, those planes were really about the same size as 767s because the 707-340s that they were designed to survive impacts with had a maximum takeoff weight of 328,000 pounds comparing to 395,000 pounds for 767-200. They had similar length and actually the cruise speed of a 707-340 is considerably faster, 607 versus 530 miles per hour. And since kinetic energy goes up with the square of the, of the velocity, Um, A typical impact of a 707 that it was designed to withstand would have actually involved more force than the 767s that actually hit them. Moreover, the fuel load that so much is made out of, that's supposedly the part that wasn't anticipated, of a 707, uh, fuel capacity is 23,000 gallons versus 23,900 gallons of a 767. But note that the 767s were only carrying about 10,000 gallons at the time that they crashed into the towers because they were on transcontinental flights that were well below their maximum, you know, like 40% of their maximum range, which is about 7,000 miles. But the assertion that the engineers who designed these signature buildings 
just somehow forgot about the fuel loads of a potential plane crash is just ludicrous. That's exactly what engineers are paid to do is consider all the most unlikely possibilities that could happen. And for them to think, you know, to think that, oh, they contemplated the crash of a 707, but they forgot to think about the fuel load, it's ludicrous. So in both cases, the plane completely entered the building. And in the case of the South Tower, much of the plane exited the building. Plus, in the case of the South Tower, a lot of the fuel entered the, uh, left the building too. Note that the fireball in the South Tower was much more impressive than the fireball in the North Tower because in the South Tower, the fireball broke out. It continued in the direction the plane was going. So it, entered, it kind of broke out of the northeast part of the tower and this huge, impressive fireball. The North Tower more completely absorbed the impact of the plane and, and retained the plane and more of its fuel load inside of the building, which is, I think, why the fire was so much more severe in the case of the North Tower. Whereas perhaps more than half of the fuel, maybe even a lot more than half of the fuel, spilled out and burned up in a few seconds in the atmosphere in the case of the South Tower. So on September 11th, two buildings were hit by planes, the two towers. Mm-hmm. There were an additional four buildings in the World Trade Center that were not hit by planes and did not collapse, but were severely damaged in the collapse of the Twin Towers. And ravaged by severe fires. And then there was the final building, Building 7, which had only insignificant fires, was not hit by an airplane, and was not hit by significant fallout from either of the Twin Towers, as is clearly evident when you look at the aerial photographs that show the fallout pattern from the the large-scale rubble of, like, the North Tower, the closest of the two towers. That's the third building that totally collapsed. So it, it, even just even just ignoring the, the history of skyscrapers and steel buildings and fires and how no fire has ever destroyed a steel frame building before, no matter how severe, even ignoring all that and just looking at what happened in the World Trade Center complex on September 11th, it, it completely invalidates the, the story of what destroyed the Twin Towers in Building 7. Well, let's take a look at World Trade Center 7. It's a smaller building, and it's located across the street from the World Trade Center. That's right. It's directly north, across Vassy Street, and Building 6 is between the North Tower, the nearer of the two towers, and Building 7. So So it's like a whole building across 300 feet. Describe World Trade Center 7. How tall is it? How many floors does it have? How was it constructed? And what happened to it? Um, Building 7 was 500 and something feet. It was about a little less than half the twice of the Twin Towers, but still a huge building. It occupied an entire block. You know, let's see, the what, what's the floor area, for instance, of... Well, actually, I don't even have that on my table because my table about information for Building 7 says no information available, which is kind of typical of Building 7 because, you know, Building 7, unlike the rest of the World Trade Center complexes, has been shrouded in secrecy. It was... There's just so much about Building 7 that's not public, and even the... FEMA's report on Building 7 is extremely vague and even far more vague than the already vague description of the structure of the Twin Towers, which is there's also this huge evidence vacuum around because you would think that these buildings were built with public money and were two of the three worst structural failures in world history or, you know, Building 7 and the Twin Towers are by far the three largest structural failures in world history. And yet the blueprints of these buildings are completely off limits to the public. They are not available. And all we get is a very vague description that FEMA releases in its report. And that description itself is very suspect because it doesn't account for about 30% of the steel that supposedly went into the towers based on the amount of steel that supposedly went into them. There's this this one author, an, an anonymous author that has done some of the pioneering work on the Twin Towers demolition, calculated the total steel in the Twin Towers based on FEMA's description and comes up that much short. 
So what about World Trade Center 7? How is it constructed? It has a steel core. It's a tube within a tube construction. It is basically the, similar to the World Trade Center, a tube within a tube construction. It's not square like the towers. It's a trapezoid. The footprint is a trapezoidal shape. So it has two parallel walls and then two kind of wedge-shaped walls. But other than that, it's kind of similar like so many other skyscrapers. It has a bundle of columns in the core, and it has a palisade of perimeter columns around the outside. Basically, the most common kind of skyscraper design in the world today. Very few skyscrapers these days are designed with just the kind of uniform lattice of columns like the Empire State Building, for instance, has. Could you talk about who the tenants were in World Trade Center 7? And I also understand that it was built over a multi-storied electrical substation? Yes, it was built over a straddled a Con Edison electrical substation which meant that actually Building 7 was even more robust construction than a typical steel frame skyscraper because it had to span some fairly large distances in the, over the substation. So it had particularly thick steel beams. But in terms of the tenants, Building 7 is interesting because whereas the other six buildings of the World Trade Center, especially the two Twin Towers, which had literally hundreds of tenants, the tenant list of Building 7 is pretty short. And it's also interesting that you can characterize the tenants as completely being either Government agencies, it had Internal Revenue Service, the SEC, Mayor Giuliani's Emergency Command Center. And then in addition to that, it just had financial institutions like Solomon Smith Barney, American Express Bank International, Standard Chartered Bank, Provident Financial, and just a handful of other financial institutions. The whole list is only about 12 long. And in addition to those tenants, a New York Times article revealed that it was also served as a secret CIA center. It was the CIA base of operations in New York City. So it's a very interesting list, a particularly then-Mayor Rudolph Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, which was housed in a fortified bunker on the 23rd floor of this building. This bunker had an independent air and water supply, had bullet and blast-resistant glass, and overlooked, had a perfect view of the Twin Towers. It was built in 1998, long after the first alleged terrorist attack on the 1993 bombing of the Twin Towers. So this was the ideal location in which to manage the response to the emergency of the September 11th attack, and yet Mayor Rudolph Giuliani apparently didn't even go to Building 7 on September 11th, but rather set up makeshift headquarters on Barclay Street even before the first of the towers collapsed. Is it true that uh, this bunker on the 23rd floor of uh, Mayor Giuliani's had its own air, water, and fuel supply? Yeah, and fuel supply, too, because this whole building, I believe, was designed to be independent. It had There were large diesel fuel storage tanks. There was one on the seventh floor, one on the f- uh, second, and then there were large underground tanks that held, like, I don't know, 70,000 gallons of diesel fuel so that this whole building could be run, or at least large portions of it could be run independently of the power grid, and and certainly this bunker was a very survivable location. Um, in the event of a terrorist attack, and yet it was abandoned on the uh, on September 11th, supposedly. So could you tell us what happened to World Trade Center 7? What happened to it on September 11th? Well, um, World Trade Center 7 was evacuated sometime during the... I think it was evacuated even before the first of the tower collapses. And then there were small fires that were observed just basically about two locations on the building. They were, very, they were both far down in the building. One was like on the sixth floor or so, one was maybe on the 20th. I don't even know if that was that high, but just two areas of fire. And these two areas of fire themselves look contrived. They just burn consistently for a long period of time as if they were like diesel was being you know, delivered to them or something. They didn't spread. They just stayed localized to one small section of the floor in either case. 
And furthermore, the New York City Fire Department was ordered to not fight the fires in Building 7, which is itself very curious because no steel frame building had ever collapsed before. Oh, well, I, well, I guess we have the North and the South Tower, and I guess now all steel frame buildings are suspect when they're on fire, so therefore we're not going to fight any more fires in high-rise buildings? Well, I don't know. I guess that's the rationale for abandoning Building 7 and allowing it to burn. But even after abandoning it and allowing it to burn, there's still just these small areas of fire that burn for a good part of the afternoon. Meanwhile, the north facade of this building, as evident from photos, showed not even any signs of damage. And there's no evidence that other parts of this building were damaged. And yet, with the only explaining cause being these small localized fires, which were themselves very suspicious, and there were no, there were neither manual attempts to fight these fires, nor apparently were the sprinkler systems working, because the sprinkler systems normally would have easily managed these fires. Yet, in spite of these very minor stresses to this steel frame building, the building underwent a total systematic vertical collapse at 520 in the afternoon, falling straight into its footprint in a motion that was so smooth and quick that the building entirely reached the ground in only a fraction of a second longer than it would have taken a brick dropped in a vacuum from the height of the building's tower. So virtually all the resistance in this building had to be destroyed throughout the building, not just in one part of the building, but throughout the building in order to allow it to collapse so quickly. So we have a, the first case in history of the total collapse of a steel frame skyscraper, or steel frame high-rise for that matter, total collapse blamed on fire, and there's just no precedent whatsoever for it. Did the building essentially turn to powder? Well, not to the degree that the Twin Towers did. If you look at the rubble around the Twin Towers, those buildings were shredded. There weren't any steel assemblies more than about 30 feet long that were left. I mean, even the core columns, these continuous steel columns that were yard wide that ran the height of the building, those are just chopped up no more than 30 foot long sections that could be easily loaded onto the equipment that was cleaning up ground zero. Meanwhile, Building 7 had much larger assemblies, and it looked more like a classic demolition where there were fairly extensive portions of the outer wall that were still intact but were kind of folded in and lying on top of the building. So there was a lot of dust produced in the collapse of Building 7, and I haven't been able to find enough photographs to document what the size of that dust cloud was relative to the Twin Towers, but it looks to me like it was a much less energetic event than what took place in the towers. And certainly the fact that with the towers, that pulverization occurring high in the air, you didn't see anything like that happening in World Trade Center 7. It just went down into its footprint, and then, then the dust came up after it had sunken down. It wasn't the top-down explosive demolition that we saw in the case of the Twin Towers. I'm speaking with software engineer and research scientist Jim Hoffman. Today's show, Your Eyes Don't Lie, Common Sense, Physics, and the World Trade Center Collapses. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So would you describe the collapse of World Trade Center 7 as an implosion or a, a controlled demolition? Well, the, 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 like? the controlled demolition is, is a conclusion, but the description as an implosion is certainly accurate because um, an implosion means that um, the building falls into itself rather than blowing out. And that's exactly what um, controlled demolition seeks to achieve through precise engineering because it's not an easy task, task to bring a structure, especially a steel frame structure, down into its footprint neatly because steel is a very resilient material and if you destroy some part of it, you know, it wants to 
the structural integrity of the rest of it remains. So if you like destroyed the bottom of the building, it would topple over. If you destroyed part of it and it was enough to cause some kind of collapse, again, it would go to one side or the other and fall on adjacent real estate. So that's what only a few companies in the world specialize in doing and in controlled demolition of, of such large structures. And that takes considerable expertise to be able to place all these explosives all around the building, every single column in the building and up through various levels in the building too, and even more importantly, to precisely control the order in which those explosives are detonated so as to prevent an asymmetry of the destruction that would cause the building to topple from one side to the other. No random event such as a single explosion, a fuel tank explosion, or whatever you want to postulate could possibly cause such a tall structure as Building 7, which is five times as high as it was deep, to fall and fold directly into itself. How long did it take the building to collapse? Well, it's apparent from videos of the building that it only took about 6.5 seconds for the process to go from the building being intact to being just a pile of rubble, 6.5 seconds. You can easily calculate the time it would take an object falling in a vacuum to fall from the roof of that building to the ground, and that time is 5.9 seconds. So it's just a fraction of a second faster than it would take for an object encountering no resistance to fall that distance. Where could people see pictures, videos of the collapse of World Trade Center 7? Well, I recommend my site, which is WTC7.net. That's as in World Trade Center 7. So it's the initials WTC and the numeral 7.net. And if you go to that site, it's easy to navigate. You go to the contents and you'll find the videos. And there's three videos there, which are just you know, you say a picture is worth a thousand words, these are worth millions of words because they so clearly show what happened. And this is a really a real eye-opener if you haven't seen Building 7. Building 7 was something I had only heard about on September 11th. I thought it was a low rise. I thought it was right underneath the towers or something. I had no idea what this was really like. But this is a building all by itself, completely intact, and just boom, just turns into rubble in a, you know, neatly folds into itself in 6.5 seconds. But also on the matter of looking at the evidence, that's one site, but I've also attempted to collect every bit of evidence I can get my hands on in terms of photographs and videos of the collapse of the Twin Towers. And if you go to WTC7.net, that's kind of like a front door, and you go to hosted sites, I have this much more extensive research site under there called 911research.wtc7.net that has a whole section under the evidence section that has, you know, animations and photographs of the destruction of the Twin Towers. And I can't emphasize too much how important it is to go back and look at the actual photographs because, as I said earlier, my own experience was that when I saw those images the second time after I got interested in researching what really happened early in 2003, I had a completely different understanding of the photographs. It's as though I didn't even see what happened on September 11th because the numbing and the shock of what happened just blocked out. It just caused this negative hallucination where I didn't even comprehend what I was seeing. I didn't even, it's like I didn't even see the dust that was spewing out of the Twin Towers from early in those collapses. So yeah, please go to the sites and, and, and look it up or just do a search on WTC demolition photographs, WTC video or something like that. It's, there's a lot of stuff out there. Now, Jim, you have described the collapse of World Trade Center 7 as an implosion. That's right. But when you talk about the Twin Towers, the North Tower, the South Tower, mm -hmm. you have described their collapse as an explosion. Let's look at the Twin Towers. Which tower collapsed? Well, first of all, a plane hit each of those towers, right? Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Which tower collapsed first? 
Now, the South Tower collapsed first, but the South Tower was the second to be hit. And it collapsed first, even though it was, the damage was far less than from the North Tower, and the, and the fires were far less severe in the South Tower as well. The South Tower collapsed after only 56 minutes, whereas the North Tower lasted 102 minutes before it totally collapsed. Now, is the South Tower the tower where the plane sort of went through the corner of it? That's correct. Yeah, the, it, was a, it was an indirect blow. The hit to the North Tower was centered at about the 96th floor, and um, that could have caused some damage to the core of the building, whereas the um, hit on the South Tower hit about two-thirds of the way over on the south face of the South Tower, and the plane was at an angle, so you could actually see the fuselage emerging from the opposite corner of the building, and if you plot the trajectory of the plane through the building, you see that it almost entirely misses the core structure of the building. So not only did this building only have about 10 or 11% of its perimeter columns broken by the impacting jet. It probably had almost all of its core structure intact. And it had fires that were so so oxygen-starved that they were emitting black smoke. And according to reports from the New York Fire Department of firefighters that were high in this building, they had a plan to put out this fire. They weren't even particularly concerned or there was no sign of panic or anything. They had a plan to put this fire out. And that's when the tower came down, just as this fire was, you know, seemed to be smoldering out. So the South Tower collapsed first, but it was hit by a plane second. That's right. But getting back to what you were asking about the explosion versus the implosion. Now, an implosion, as it implies, consists of a building falling to its footprint and it not falling outwards, but falling inwards. And there's some smoke and everything, but it just, it falls very neatly into its footprint. I describe the collapse of the Twin Towers as explosions because clearly what happened, again, just go to the web and look at the videos of this. There's a number of videos that show very clearly what these events looked like. These towers mushroomed into vast clouds of dust, clouds of pulverized concrete that that were already mushrooming to vast size before they even got very far down the building. In both cases, these exploding tops, then these, these clouds of pulverized material were growing at a rate of about 50 feet per second, and they were just consuming the towers as they descended. In both cases, they grew to about three times the diameter of the towers within five seconds, and about five times the diameter of each tower by the time they reached the ground between about 12 and 13 seconds. What explanations or theories have been put out to explain what happened on September 11th in terms of the collapse of the towers? Well, we were actually subjected to a series of explanations that started with ones that were really completely ludicrous and then got progressively more sophisticated as the need arose to sell these to the American public as people looked at them a little bit more. So on the day of the collapses, we were subjected to what I call the killer fires or core meltdown theory in which supposedly the fires were so unimaginably intense that they generated the power of nuclear power plants and they melted the steel inside the buildings. And we heard alleged structural engineers spouting this kind of stuff. Chris Weiss was quoted in the BBC saying that it was the fire that killed the buildings that they couldn't possibly survive those fires. And this is just nonsense because the melting point of steel is 1,535 degrees Celsius, which is almost double the Celsius temperature of the highest temperature you can achieve by burning hydrocarbons in the atmosphere without pressurization or preheating of the air. In other words, a random fire like a building fire is probably never going to get much above 800 degrees Celsius because you need to have a systematic way of pressurizing the air and preheating it like you do in a blast furnace to achieve temperatures much above that. And note that even around 825 degrees, hydrocarbon fires that are that hot are usually with a premixed 
fuel and air in which you get a blue flame like you have on a gas stove. The, the kind of flames you have in buildings are called diffuse flames. They're orange flames. They're not blue. And those are hundreds of degrees cooler than that. So the temperatures would be nowhere near hot enough to melt the steel. It's simply ludicrous. So within two days of the attack, however, a, another theory was advanced called the column failure theory. And that was endorsed by a paper which amazingly was published just two days after the attack. And there's this paper by supposed experts Bizant and Joe using this kind of abstract mathematical theory called elastic dynamic analysis to confidently proclaim that the structural resistance was found to be an order of magnitude less than necessary for survival. And my reading of this paper is that these people don't even have a clue about how these buildings were constructed. Nowhere in the paper is it apparent that they even knew how many columns were in the building or anything about the construction of the building. It's just this completely abstract theory that has no evidence of applicability to the actual situation. But even then, they admit that their scenario requires that all of the columns on a single floor of the towers would have had to get up to 800 degrees Celsius. Well, is that possible? Not if you consider that if the columns on a building were even to reach a temperature of about 700 degrees Celsius, they would start to glow noticeably red, even in broad daylight, and that you'd have windows popping out and breaking, you'd have big emergent flames, and, and the smoke would be a bright light color, not black sooty smoke like the kind we saw on September 11th. So clearly, those weren't observed. But even more, if you look at how hot steel columns have ever gotten in an actual building fire situation based on actual studies of it, you'll find that they could get nowhere near hot enough. And that has to do with the properties of steel, which has a very high thermal conductivity, allowing it to soak away the heat. The steel in these buildings is very well connected to thousands of tons of steel. And you, if you pour heat onto one portion of it, it will simply conduct the heat away. So it's very hard to get columns in such a building heated up anywhere near the temperatures of the actual fires. A company, con Chorus Construction, conducted extensive fire tests in steel frame car parks, which were uninsulated in multiple countries and measured the temperatures on the steel frame throughout these structures for the duration of these fires, which went on for hours. And the highest temperature they recorded in any of these tests was a mere 360 degrees Celsius. Now, at 360 degrees Celsius, structural steel only loses about 1% of its strength. So the column failure theory just makes no sense whatsoever, even though it was endorsed by the owner's insurance claim investigation. So it was good enough for the insurance company, I guess. But it wasn't good enough for the American people that need something slightly less implausible. And that's how we got the trust failure theory, which was presented in the form of popular science programs that were presented on NOVA and the Discovery Channel. And the idea of this theory is that, well, we couldn't see the, you know, the columns glowing red hot outside the building, but maybe those steel trusses that underlaid the floors these floor diaphragms that span the distance between the internal columns of these buildings and the, the internal bundle of columns and the palisade of columns on the exterior of these buildings were heated up to such an extent that they sagged and then you had some sort of domino effect collapse of these floor diaphragms one on another and just it just built on itself and the floors just pancaked down. And supposedly that was supposed to lead to this total collapse scenario destroying the outer wall and the core columns of these buildings. But even if you were to accept this notion that somehow these you could have this chain reaction of these floor trusses f failing and causing adjacent ones to fail and the whole floor failing and then causing other floors to collapse, which is not plausible because it relies on several misrepresentations of the structure of the building, such as that these trusses underlying the floors were in fact 
interwoven at right angles and that they rested on solid steel shells, not the angle brackets that the proponents of this theory would have us believe. But even if you believe all this stuff about these floor diaphragms collapsing, it doesn't begin to lead to total building collapse because what you'd have is you'd have these floor diaphragms which are like sort of like rings that extend all the way around the core and out to the exterior wall, which simply pancake down around the core columns like records falling down around a spindle, leaving both the core structure and the outer wall intact, no total collapse. Supposedly, the unsupported or unbraced height of these core columns and the exterior columns is supposed to make them unsurvivable. They're supposed to buckle or something because they aren't braced by the floor diaphragms. But the floor diaphragms weren't even a major structural component of these buildings. These were not freestanding columns as we were led to believe. Rather, they were abundantly cross-braced. The outer wall columns, every floor had four-foot-high spandrel plates that stitched together the columns all the way around the building, and the interior columns were abundantly cross-braced into a very dense and robust bundle of columns that were entirely self-supporting. The failure of the flooring system would in no way have led to complete collapse of these buildings. NOVA, the um, people who presented this theory to the American people, used a number of deceptive techniques to make this theory seem more believable, as did FEMA, the government agency that would later endorse this theory and present it as the official government story. The key deception of FEMA's representation of this theory is that they use a number of techniques to make the reader unaware that the cores of these buildings, the strongest element of these buildings, even existed. They used deceptive illustrations, and they used diagrams in which the core columns don't even look like columns. They're depicted as toothpick-like structures, and they misrepresent the cores of these buildings as being merely service cores that have the elevators and the stairs and the bathrooms and stuff. They don't talk about the structural aspect of the cores. They don't call them core structures. They call them the service cores. And so that is among many deceptions that they use. If you actually look at photographs of these buildings being constructed, you can see just how robust these core structures were. Numerous vertical uh, columns, these columns were box columns a foot wide by three feet deep, um, fabricated of steel. It was four inches thick at their bases. There were 47 of these in, and they have all kinds of horizontal bracing against each other and even diagonal bracing on the outer clusters of columns in this large core structure that was about 100 feet on a side. I'm speaking with software engineer and research scientist Jim Hoffman. Today's show, Your Eyes Don't Lie, Common Sense, Physics, and the World Trade Center Collapses. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So there were three explanations put out soon after the collapses that you are saying neither three of them hold water. Number one, right. that the core melted down, the steel core melted down. Yeah, first down. is physically impossible. The second is basically physically impossible, too, because... Um, the second one is what, that the columns collapsed? Yeah, the columns collapsed because all the columns on a single floor were supposedly heated to about 800 degrees Celsius, which is about four to 500 degrees higher than temperatures have, that have ever been recorded in prolonged tests of hydrocarbon fires on steel structures, uninsulated steel structures even. And then the third explanation was the truss failure, and that's the theory or the explanation that mm-hmm. FEMA is putting out. Well, that's the one that FEMA adopted. I'm not sure what the actual origin of it. One of its most enthusiastic spokespersons is Professor Thomas Eager, a, ma- a material science professor at MIT, who um, used all kinds of analogies like zippers and dominoes to describe the construction of these buildings as if buildings are designed to start, just rip themselves apart if something happens to compromise some part of the building. I'd like to read a quote from Eager because it's just uh, it's just so ludicrous. He suggests that the um, towers are only 
designed to survive trash can fires. This is an interview that's on the web, on the NOVA website. If it had only occurred in one little corner, such as a trash can caught on fire, you might have had to repair that corner, but the whole building wouldn't have come crashing down. The problem was it was such a widely distributed fire, and then you got this domino effect. So I, I, I attribute the domino effect and the zipper effect, which is how Eager describes the chain reaction of trusses failing. It like unzips around the building. That's the words he uses. Even though in both cases, the fires didn't even cover an entire floor of either building, especially in the South Tower. The fires remained completely isolated to the southeast side of the building and never even extended over to the other side. So he's supposed to have this chain reaction of unzipping of the trusses around the building. And he, of course, in the illustrations, they omit the cross braces and they represent the core as a series of slabs. It's almost like these hypnotic suggestions that the building is just waiting to pancake. And you're talking about the Twin Towers. Yeah, yeah. Because interestingly, you know, we've been talking about the Twin Towers in Building 7, but the Twin Towers have been the subject of these very extensive media campaigns to convince people of what happened, you know, very expensive productions, these illustrations, these animations that make these collapses look very clean, they do away with the dust and they have these trusses, you know, just falling down and everything. Um, so a lot of attention was paid to the Twin Towers, but Building 7 has just been the subject of complete silence because since people don't, under, don't even remember Building 7, there's been no need for a large public relations campaign to convince people of the official explanation. To your knowledge, is there any ongoing investigation of the physical evidence from September 11th? Um, there have been some noises from NIST. That's National Institute for Standards and Technology and I think they still have an ongoing investigation. They've been requesting evidence about it. So it's not clear where that investigation is going, though. It appears that their investigation is taking place strictly within the confines of the official story. In other words, they're going to come out with some recommendations that we should do some additional fireproofing or something like that. I don't have any hope, really, that they're conducting a serious investigation, although I think it, it's probably worth pressuring them and sending them evidence. So the only official report from the government on an investigation of the physical evidence in September 11th is a report put out by FEMA. And just very briefly, what does the FEMA report claim? Does it come up with an explanation? Well, the FEMA report has a number of chapters, and it covers the North and South Tower in one chapter, and it covers Building 7 in another chapter. We've talked about Building 7 and how, if you read the report, they contend that they're clueless about what happened to Building 7 because they say that the most likely scenario has a low probability of occurring. I mean, very legalistic language. They clearly don't buy the official story, but they clearly won't consider the only reasonable alternative, which is demolition. So the thing on Building 7 is just kind of a sick joke. There's a chapter on that. Now, the chapter on the Twin Towers, they give this ludicrous explanation of the trust failure chain of events, you know, like this domino effect chain of events leading to the floor collapses, and then that's supposed to lead to total building collapse. And it's clear they don't even believe the official story there either because they use highly legalistic language saying that the unsupported span of possibly freestanding core columns. I mean, they couch their, their language with all these qualifications that make it clear that they're just trying to cover themselves and, and not lie too much outright. And furthermore, they describe that scenario in some detail for the North Tower, the second tower to collapse, the one that had the more severe fires and the one that had the, the direct hit from the airplane. And then kind of gloss over the South Tower. They don't disclose the fact that the um, fuselage of the South Tower clearly didn't take out much of the core structure of the building. But what's really interesting about the FEMA report is it's really an exercise in deception. Because um, we talked a little bit about how the whole trust failure scenario is basically a deception to try to make you think about the first few events of the collapse. 
but then kind of gloss over the rest of it. You know, you present a complicated scenario. You have a almost nominally plausible first set of events, but then by the time you get to the, how the palisade of columns and the exterior and the core is supposed to have self-destructed, you know, it doesn't even really address that specifically. You're, you're supposed to kind of infer that or just imagine it or something. But what's really the primary deception in FEMA's report is to make you think that the core columns didn't even exist. And they do that in a number of ways. They have all these cute illustrations that kind of make it look like they're like looking at a span of the floor and making it look like that's the whole building when they're actually what they're actually depicting if you carefully read the fine print is that it's spanning the distance between the core and the outer wall. And then they they have other places where they describe the core of the building as the service core when they're talking about elevators and bathrooms and stuff like that. They don't talk about that there's, you know, these huge steel columns, these yard-wide box columns fabricated of steel four inches thick at the bases. There's 47 of these and they're highly cross-braced. Rather, they have these illustrations where they depict these core columns as these little tiny like toothpick-like columns that are a fraction of their actual dimensions. And then, of course, they also leave out any notion that these were highly cross-braced because these core structures weren't just a series of vertical columns. Rather, it was a steel lattice where you have these huge continuous core columns running the entire height of the building. And then you have large beams that cross-brace these columns and even diagonal trusses that triangulate the outer bundles of four columns on each of the corners of the core structure. So it's just a highly robust structure. I mean, clearly the core itself would have been able to withstand hurricane force winds if it just stood by itself. And yet FEMA is hoping that we'll believe that the core just self-destructed when the floor diaphragms surrounding them fell away. Is there anything else that you have investigated about the events of 9-11 in terms of the physical evidence that you'd like to talk about? My focus has been on the, the events in Manhattan because I think that I think it's really shocking the silence that we've seen around that. Even with investigators who talk about other aspects of 9-11, various implausibilities of the hijacker scenario, or there's been a lot of attention given to the Pentagon attack, and there's a lot of competing theories about the Pentagon attack. But meanwhile, it, it seems very clear to a lot of people what happened in Manhattan, and yet there's this surprising, I think, silence, even among the skeptics, to really take on what happened and really call this a demolition and really, really expose it. Because what I emphasize is that the this event in Manhattan. Manhattan was the core of the target of 9-11. It was the core of the psychological assault of of the attack. And it was the event that really shocked people. I mean, the Pentagon was shocking in that what you would think would be the most heavily defended building in the United States or in the world for that matter that was only 11 miles away from Andrews Air Force Base with two combat-ready fighter wings was hit almost an hour and a half after the crisis began and they, they couldn't even get up an interceptor to protect the Pentagon. I mean, that's pretty shocking. But note that the Pentagon attack happened before the first of the tower collapses. So I think if you consider the whole event from the point of view of a psychologically engineered attack in order to shock people and to make people feel disempowered and to make people feel afraid and sign off on whatever the government wants to do in terms of international aggression or whatever. The core of this whole event is Manhattan. That's where more than 10 times as many people died in Manhattan than in the other two parts of the crime scene, like in Washington, D.C., and in the crash field in, in Pennsylvania. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Jim Hoffman. Jim Hoffman has been researching the World Trade Center collapses since February 2003 and has created an extensive website reporting his investigations and other aspects of the September 11th attacks. 
He can be contacted by email at jim at msri.org. Visit his website at www.wtc7.net. That's www.wtc7.net. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaro Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of our shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. You did.